The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. ask you to turn with me to Luke 13. I will read beginning at verse 22. I think it's always good for you to follow along and have the text open in front of you. Luke 13, 22 through verse 30. Listen to this of God's holy word. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, Will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you are coming from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and north and south and recline at table In the kingdom of God, and behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. Aesop's Fables has a story that I think applies to modern Christians. The story says that once there was a small frog who lifted his head in a meadow to look up and see a huge ox standing above him. The frog studied the ox with great uh, interest and admiration and said to himself, look at that grand animal, why he is so magnificent with his breadth and his height and his great horns. I am so tiny and insignificant beside him. I wonder if I could ever rise somehow in my stature to be like him. The frog decided his skin was flexible, so he thought, maybe I can grow, I can expand myself, I will gulp in air, and he began swallowing air, and sure enough, he began to expand and get wider and bigger, and he kept on gulping down more and more air, and he was thinking, I'm on my way, I'm going to be as grand as that big ox. And then, maybe you know the story, suddenly he took his last great gulp And he exploded all over the place, and there was nothing left of that frog. Well, I think there's possibly a parallel there to what some individual Christians and whole denominations have done to themselves in the last century or more with doctrine. I might remind you that 
in the book of Acts, the first name that Christians had wasn't to be called Christians for a while at least. They were called people of the way. There was a way to follow Christ, and they said, we're people who are on that way. Well, here we are 20 centuries later, and some folks say, you know, we need to make the road wider. It seems kind of like too narrow a path. We need to expand it. We need to be more tolerant. We need to listen to our society and to social trends and so on. And and we need to widen the gate of eternal life. Now, this doesn't always happen by people setting out to decide we're just going to deny things of the Bible. Usually, it happens softly and by degree, just by not emphasizing some things, especially the harder-edged truths and things that that Jesus said, and not mentioning words like hell or, or something that just seems to be hard to take, and emphasize the, the softer and the nicer things. And soon you've widened Christianity, but you may have also put it near the point of bursting to bits as far as resembling the way of Christ. I think there are a few labels that we Christians fear more than being indicted as narrow people, right? Who wants to be narrow? It doesn't sound nice. It isn't the way you want to be. And, and yet we hear this kind of thing. People sort of sneer at evangelicals. Oh, those bigots. They're, everything's black and white to them. They, they hate people. They're, they're guilty of hate speech, we're told. You well know that particularly the issue of homosexuality has brought this out in in our society, but that's not the only subject. And they think that we Christians must just be ignorant of some wider intellectual perspective that they are party to. They say, well, I'm, I'm a liberal thinker. I have an open mind. I'm very objective and scientific. That at least is what they say. In intellectual conclaves of many of our universities and theological seminaries that once were faithful, you find the tight, close circle of bigotry in a way that's just amazing. While saying we are open-minded, they're closed-minded to Christ. They're closed-minded to the gospel. And journalists, you know, a great area. There's a lot of room for Christians to go into journalism. You'll have a tough road, I can tell you that. Because you well know the bias of the media. The media wants to say, well, basically anything goes. You know, we're in favor. We, we think liberally. Oh, wait a minute. Except for those conservatives. Except for those folks who draw hard lines. We're not in favor of that. There's a particular Protestant denomination that is well represented in Lancaster County that has taken up a, a I, don't, I don't know if it's an official thing or it's just informal, but on the street signs of many of their churches today, they will have the church name, denominational name, and then this code, open and affirming. Open and affirming. I think, oh, that sounds good. They must be real friendly folks. Uh, they, must, they must have the warmth of the gospel there, right? Well, I can tell you I wouldn't be invited there to preach the gospel. <laughs> I wouldn't be invited there to speak of Jesus Christ as the way, the truth, and the life. 
Because that's not what open and affirming means. It means anything a human being feels like doing, we're in favor of it. We're not going to judge you. We're not narrow. What we are is so wide and porous that any doctrine we do have runs right through us and drains down all over the place. Was it an accident that Jesus chose this word narrow? He chose it. Jesus spoke several languages. Aramaic was his daily language. He knew Greek. He knew Hebrew. He was learned that much. He had a a wide vocabulary. He could have found the most precise word to describe the door to eternal life. And in verse 24 of our text, he says, strive to enter the narrow door. He chose that word for a reason. If you're afraid of that word, I think maybe you need to come to terms with it and think about why Christ used a word like that. He was saying the way into eternal life is highly specific. It's not whatever you choose it to be. It's how the Scripture defines it. I want to show you as we think about this today that faith in Christ always narrows down to one subject, then one Savior, one soul's opportunity to do something about it. First of all, the gospel is as narrow as one biblical subject. The Bible really is only about one subject. Actually, this this man was voicing that subject who spoke to Jesus in verse 23. Lord, will those who are saved be few? What's the subject? Who will be redeemed by God? Who of sinful humanity, the broad mass of all of us, will be redeemed to see the face of God and live before him? That's the Bible's big question. That's the unifying subject of the Scripture as we begin to learn about sinful humanity in the early pages of Genesis and follow it all the way through Genesis, Exodus, you name any book, you can find the theme, who will be reconciled to God out of sinful humanity. Now this man, we don't know who he was, if he was a disciple or just an onlooker, he's not identified, it just says someone asked. We do know he was almost surely a Jew, and there probably was, as, as an Israelite, a certain interest in the question he was asking. He wasn't just asking about mathematics. Lord, how many will be in heaven? It sounds like that's what he's asking. Will it be a big crowd or a small crowd? But there's probably a secondary question within that where he was saying, will it be only Israelites or all those other people too? Because, of course, there was a a pretty big prejudice there of the people of Israel who thought they would be God's only people chosen to be with him in eternity. Well, as I say, the Bible takes this question again and again in different books in the lives of Adam and Abel and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David and on through the Gospels relentlessly all the way to the end of Revelation. And it's answering this question, who will be reconciled to God and be with him in eternity? It's the big question. And the Bible is as narrow as that one subject. Now, that's a short first point. Secondly, a more central point to our subject here. The gospel is as narrow as one Savior. It's as narrow as Christ, the one supremely qualified expert who can bring you to God. Do you ever think about how many areas of life you trust an expert in? If you're going to sell your house, you go to a realtor. 
You could do it yourself. I've actually done it myself, but it's not easy right now, certainly, to do it. Take my advice. Go to a realtor. If you need, you know, your appendix is burning and sharply painful, you don't go for the Swiss Army knife and say, I can handle this. Just put a mirror there, and I think I can... Well, maybe you want to try that, but I'm not going to. You trust yourself to an expert when you get on an airplane. You usually don't even see the pilot until you're getting off. I've always thought it was interesting. I would think, you would think the pilot would want to make you feel good and would stand there and kind of greet you as a go, hello, welcome, uh, your life will be in my hand for the next three hours and I might crash this plane and it'll be my fault that you die. No, they don't do that. They might say hello as you leave or you might glimpse them in the cockpit. But you trust your life to that stranger who's a, hopefully an expert in what he does. My wife and I replaced our hot water heater this week. I could have had this solution. I only thought about it after the fact. I could have gone to Home Depot, shopped the hot water heaters, bought one, trucked it home, bought some pipes, whatever, got out the soldering gun and the pipe wrench and acted like I knew what I was doing and said, wife, I will deliver us a new working hot water heater. I did not do that. I didn't even think about doing that. We called the plumber. I like my plumbing to work. I read a story once. I'm, I imagine it's apocryphal, but it makes an interesting point. Supposedly, a surgeon uh, did heart bypass surgery on a wealthy businessman and sent his bill. The office, the medical office, sent the bill, and the businessman recovered enough to open his mail, and the bill came for surgery, $100,000. And he was outraged. He thought, my goodness, the guy was only busy four hours. How could he earn $100,000? This is terrible. I'm calling him. He's going to have to give me an accounting for a bill like that. So finally, he got a hold of the surgeon. $100,000. Give me an account for what that's all about. And the surgeon said, well, that's really not very difficult. I charged you $3,000 for cutting your chest open and sewing it back up again. I charged you $97,000 for knowing exactly where to cut. Isn't that what we employ a surgeon to do? To know where to cut and what to do once he has cut? It's his expertise, his experience. We can't do what he does. Now, Take those examples and think for a minute at how we will approach the most important subject of all, what I said was the one subject the Bible teaches on, how does a sinful man or woman come to God in eternity and enjoy him in heaven, be redeemed by him? How do we have the audacity to say that any old thing you dream up to accomplish that, any old pathway you figure out, any old religion that you work out or somebody else has worked out and you think it's kind of fascinating, will equally accomplish that grand, ultimate, eternal result. Any old thing will do it. Or is there some specific solution that only one is really qualified to see that be accomplished? Your hunches, your speculations, your ignorant suppositions won't do it. You need the transcendent expert on how to come to God. Have you weighed the singularity of Jesus Christ? 
Many of you know the writings of C.S. Lewis. His greatest book was probably Mere Christianity, and the greatest part of that greatest book was probably in the early going, and I'm paraphrasing, I don't have it in front of me, but where Lewis talked about Christ and talked about how he was popularly conceived of, and he said, you know, people talk about Jesus the great prophet, Jesus the great teacher. Oh, he's right up there with Muhammad and Buddha and Moses and Confucius and all the great men of the ages. Lewis said, ridiculous. Don't talk about Jesus that way. He didn't allow it. Because here's a man who said, I and the Father God are one. Any man who makes the claims that Jesus made either has to be believed and understood that he's right, or he's insane and he better be locked up. But don't talk about him as a great preacher. He took that option away. No other prophet ever predicted he would rise from the dead and did it. I suppose there have been some. You know, the guy who took shots at the White House, did you see that on the news the other day? They showed a little clip of him on the evening news. He said, I am, I am the return of Jesus Christ. Here I am. So I guess what Jesus Christ will do when he returns is take his rifle and shoot at the White House. I'm not quite sure what that accomplishes, but no prophet ever said the things Jesus said and then produced a fulfillment of every one of them, even things being fulfilled that he had no power to control or manipulate, little things happening while he was pinned helpless on the cross and they fed him sour wine as the Old Testament said they would and they gambled for his clothes as the Old Testament said they would. He was supreme. He was different. He was utterly unique. And he said things like, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. If I said that, call a congregational meeting and vote me out because I'm wrong. I'm being blasphemous to say that. But Jesus said it, and he was right. He said, before Abraham existed, I existed. He said, I'm the only way, the only truth, the only life. And then if you didn't get the meaning from those three phrases, he added, no one comes to the Father except through me. There isn't any other way. No wonder they called themselves the way. Because they were the people who believed the man who said, I'm the only way. He said, I'm the door. If any man comes in by me, he'll be saved. There was that time in John 6 when people were starting to be offended by Christ and some were turning to other paths and and going off and Jesus tested the disciples and he said, are you guys going to? And Peter spoke and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? We don't know anybody else like you. You have the words of eternal life. You're absolutely unique. Where would we go? What about Paul writing in 1 Timothy 2.5 to say there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus? What about the entire book of Hebrews? You know, Hebrews is a somewhat complicated book. You can get kind of lost in its forest, but if you just keep stepping back and remind yourself, you can keep it clear because Hebrews has a fairly easy thesis. The thesis is Jesus is superior to everything. And the book takes that and says he's superior to angels, he's superior to Moses, he's superior to the Old Testament priests, and so on and so on. And at the end, you've got Jesus standing all by himself, superior to everything. 
You know, it's really surprising to some people, I guess, that the Bible has a pretty specific, well-defined, highly particular way to be saved, to come to God and see his face in eternity. (laughs) Something happened on Friday that just absolutely made me laugh. I sat at my computer and laughed. I was working on this sermon, and I remembered that I needed to get a little message to uh, one of our men in the church. And so I quick flipped open my directory. I didn't have his email uh, right at hand. I looked it up, and he has an unusual first name. I won't tell you who it was. But uh, I, I thought I saw that his whole email was his first name at verizon.net. So I put his first name in at verizon.net, wrote a few lines I had to sell him, sent it. In about a half an hour, I got a reply. But the reply wasn't from the man I thought it was sending the email to. It was from some stranger who said, "Uh, I think you meant this email for somebody else. He was the one with that address. And I looked back at my directory. Oh, I should have written first name and first initial of his last name. That was the right address. I left off one letter. The message got delivered. But it didn't get delivered to the place I thought it was going. Have you had that experience or anything like it? I I sat there and I laughed because here I was preparing to preach a sermon about there being one specific way to eternal life in God. And some kind stranger said, I think you've got your messages mixed up. Fortunately, I didn't say anything that this guy couldn't hear and didn't humiliate myself with what I had to say. But isn't it true, I mean, in this computer age, more than ever before, every letter of every email address, every passcode, every social security number, every phone number has got to be specific. One numeral out of place, one letter out of place, your message will not be delivered. Why do we people who live with that every day see it as a surprising thing that God says there's a way? And it's a clear, specific, definite way. But there isn't any other way. There's a way to me and to eternity. And it's through Jesus Christ. So third and finally, as we think about Christ answering this man's question, Lord, will those who are saved be few? I hear him saying in this passage that each soul's individual response is what counts. There's one subject, how to come to God, one Savior, and one soul comes to him at a time. Now, actually, the Bible answers this man's question as far as the numerical part, even though Jesus didn't too much in this passage. Take Revelation 7, 9, that tells us of that eternal scene in heaven where we're told that there will be a great multitude that no man can count from every tribe and people and language. Actually, that answered both of this man's questions. The number will be large, and they won't all be Israelites, is all answered in Revelation 7-9. In fact, every single nation and tribe and language will be represented. Glory to God. But the point of what Jesus is saying in talking about a narrow door is this. Each and every one of those millions or billions or whatever they are who will come home to him will come to him one person at a time through the one and only door 
that exists. If you go to Clipper Stadium here to see a baseball game in Lancaster, there are turnstiles you go through. I was always fascinated with turnstiles. I always couldn't understand why they didn't, they only let you in one way and not out the other way. And it always seemed a little threatening to me. I thought maybe I'd get stuck in the middle and I wouldn't get all the way through or something. But I've always gotten through every one I attempted to get through. I fit tighter now than I used to, but I, st- I still get through. Well, suppose for some reason all the, I don't know how many turnstiles go into Clipper Stadium. I don't know, what, what 12, 15, 20, I have no idea. Suppose for some reason they all locked up except one. And there were 15,000 people due for a baseball game. Could they all get into the game? Of course they could. That would take a little longer, but they'd have to line up and all go through that one turnstile. And they'd all get in. But they'd all pass through this one door. Jesus is not saying that his gospel excludes any group of people, any type of people, any language or ethnic group or skin color or anything else. But they all come through the one door into life. You see, the mathematical part wasn't what he was so concerned about, whether it was many or few. That really wasn't his issue. His concern was, have you come? Will you come through the one and only door that there is, himself? By trusting in him. And you notice this passage has a little bit of a negative thrust to it because he talks about the, the fact that there will be people at some point in time in the end time of things when they can't come anymore. And they're going to be amazed. They're going to say, well, I, I kind of knew where that door was and I always figured I'd go through when time, you know, allowed me to do it before I died or something. And Jesus says, you better come now. You better come now because you don't know when the opportunity is going to close for you. And the Lord will say these terrible things that are here twice, he says in this passage. I don't know you. You thought you knew me, but you didn't trust me. You didn't adore me. You didn't serve me. You didn't offer yourself to me. And you went through all of life. I don't know you. You can't come in. Now, the suggestion, I believe, is very strong that today you can. The door is not closed now. The door is absolutely open and available. But don't delay about it. A great preacher, Martin Lloyd-Jones, years ago, wrote this. Let me quote a a paragraph, several sentences from him. Lloyd-Jones said, If you can find God without going to him by a Calvary, do so. If you can find true liberation from your disabling sins without the power of the cross being applied to them, by all means, go and find that. If you can lie upon your deathbed and think calmly of facing a holy God apart from having the righteousness of Jesus over you, then I have nothing else to say to you. But then Lloyd-Jones said, If, however, you feel miserable and wretched... If you know that your best achievements are like pitiful rags, if you feel helpless today and don't know who to turn to, turn to the Christ of the cross with his arms outstretched to you saying, look unto me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Jesus is the door to the eternal God that you will certainly be able to enter if you go to him. He will not disappoint. He will not turn you away. 
He will receive you. And he will receive you willingly and with great joy. But you must come through him, not through a way of your own invention and your own ideas and your own philosophical thoughts. He's the way to know the living God because he is the visible representation of the living God on this earth. And he's the only divine savior. His gospel is as broad today as the open door of opportunity. Come to me. Young people, a lot of our young people aren't here. They're on retreat. But those who are here, high school students, middle school students, college students are going to be back with us this week. You are faced with a whole array of things in this world that say, here's a way to think. Try this out. This option's pretty entertaining. This one will get you somewhere. This one takes you the same place as everything else does. That smorgasbord of options is a smorgasbord of lies. There's one supreme expert who can bring you to God. And I ask you to run to Christ through the single gate of trusting him in his death, in his resurrection, and in the hope of eternity with him. Because the way that goes through Christ leads to life. Nothing else does. Our Father, I pray that we would be happily called narrow. Let them heap on the charge of bigotry and hate speech and all of that. If we can only make clear somehow to people in this generation that just as the right phone number connects them to the right party they desire to talk to, one Savior connects to you, the living God. I pray today, oh God, if there's someone among you who's resting here today in this sanctuary in the folly of thinking, I can follow this path, that path, the other path, it doesn't matter. Lord, as they see the connection being refused time and again, let them come the one way through Jesus. Help us to be ambassadors of this for his praise. Amen.